So our text tonight is Genesis 45 through Genesis 47, 27. So if you thought we were daring in doing two chapters of Genesis the last time, we're doing almost three this evening. Uh, but we will trust the Lord that he will help us to, to study this uh, text as we are coming quickly to the end of our study of the book of Genesis. In the introduction to our last study of Genesis 43 and 44, it was indicated that conflict is one of the major themes in this tenth and last narrative of Genesis, and that conflict has been consistently seen throughout all the previous nine narratives of Genesis. In the same way, sin and its effects on lives have consistently been seen throughout Genesis. And often when we consider sin and its effects within Genesis, our mind will often go to the major events that we see in Genesis. Adam's sin, which plunged mankind into spiritual death. We often will think of the sin of man seen in Noah's day, which resulted in God's judgment by the worldwide flood. Or Sodom and Gomorrah's sin, which resulted in God raining down fire and destroying those cities. But throughout Genesis, we've also seen the up-close and personal impacts of sin, and often within the context of family. Cain murdering Abel. Isaac and Rebekah's favoritism, which resulted in Jacob stealing Esau's birthright and blessing. Jacob's fleeing for his life because of Esau's vow to kill him, and as a result of that, never seeing his mother alive again. We think of Laban's taking advantage of Jacob and tricking him into marrying Leah instead of Rachel, whom he had worked for seven years in order to marry. And in the generations of Jacob, this last narrative, we've seen Jacob's favoring Joseph, which resulted in the brothers' jealousy, envy, and hatred, the brothers seeking to kill Joseph and eventually selling him into slavery, the brothers lying to their fathers to have him believe that Joseph was dead for over 20 years. And these are only a few of the examples where we see the personal effects of sin and how they played out in people's lives. Genesis 43 and 44, we began to turn the corner in the narrative. Jacob's family, which was divided by conflict and sin, is now on the road to reconciliation and restoration. The last passage detailed the brother's second visit to Egypt. Judah was able to convince his father to allow them to take Benjamin with them on this second trip because they had been told by Joseph if Benjamin was not with them, then they would not see his face. And basically, they would not be able to buy the grain that Jacob had requested that they go and buy. And so when they arrive in Egypt, they're brought to Joseph's house. And they mistakenly thought that they were brought to Joseph's house because he had the purpose of punishing them for taking the money that they had brought with them previously to buy the grain. And so they thought they had been separated in order to be punished. And instead of being punished, Simeon, their brother, who has been locked up in custody all this time, is released to them. And then they have a great feast with Joseph at his home. They're amazed as they're seated in birth order, which is a virtual impossibility for people who did not know them. And as they receive food from Joseph's table, the brothers' hearts are tested as each of them receives a serving, and then Benjamin receives five servings, all within their sight, testing them to see if they were still being ruled by jealousy and envy. Instead of jealousy being seen, the brothers eat and drink and are merry with Benjamin, despite the favoritism shown to him. We also saw in our last study one final test of the brothers' hearts as they leave to return to Canaan. Joseph's cup is placed in Benjamin's sack of grain, and Joseph's steward overtakes the brothers and, and, and asks them, why did they steal his master's cup? They declare their innocence and They say, uh, at at the beginning of their defense, they said, whoever is found to have it will be killed because 
they are, it was so ridiculous to them that after they had made the second trip to pay back the money that they would steal a cup. The steward modifies the punishment and says, whoever sack it is found in will remain as a slave and all of the others will go free. Each one's sack is searched in birth order. And when the cup is discovered in Benjamin's sacks, the brothers don't abandon him. They don't even abandon Benjamin and Judah, who said he would be surety for Benjamin. But instead, the brothers return all as one to Joseph's house. Judah then pleads for Benjamin's life, acknowledging his and his brother's sin against Joseph, acknowledging and accepting his father's favoritism of Benjamin, and offers himself to Joseph to remain in Egypt so that Benjamin can return to his father and not die in grief. As we study Genesis 43 and 44, we saw the heart transformation that took place within these brothers. And in contrast to the pain, division, and destruction that sin causes to human relationships and the toll that sin has taken on Jacob's family, tonight's passage clearly displays the blessings of reconciliation. When we see these blessings played out in the narrative and consider all that this family has gone through and experienced over the past 22 years, for perspective on what 22 years is, this last month, September 11th, occurred 22 years ago. Some of you were not here. <laughs> Some of us were not here in New Jersey. We were in very different places, but consider all that has transpired in 22 years. And that is how long we are ta talking about as, as this family, once again, is brought face to face with sin. And we should remember that we are reading not a fairy tale, but actual events that happen to actual people in actual time. As we study tonight, we will see the result of God's working in their hearts and in their lives. And it's a demonstration, God's prevailing grace, overriding and overruling all that would have kept this family from reconciling, reconciling and truly displaying what we read in Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So with that as an introduction, please stand if you are able. We will read the first 15 verses of Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. 
And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and, all, and of all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After this, his brothers talked with him. Please be seated. Tonight's study, we will see the following blessings of reconciliation. We will see gracious revelation. We will see promise-filled relocation. And we will see sovereign separation. Once again, we will not read every verse in tonight's passage. Um, I will summarize a lot of the narrative as we progress through the study. After Judah's impassioned plea at the end of Genesis 44, verse 1 of chapter 45 tells us that Joseph could no longer control his emotions. He sends everyone out from his presence. Some say not only because this was going to be a family moment, but also possibly so that the Egyptians would not learn of the sin that his brothers had committed against him. Remember, at two points in time before this moment, Joseph privately wept during his interactions with his brothers. But here, the one who previously spoke harshly to his brothers now weeps aloud, so much so that the household of Pharaoh and those who had left the room could hear it. Despite the Egyptians hearing his weeping, this was Joseph addressing his brothers and their sin in private. Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers and speaks directly to them, and not through a translator. In Hebrew, he says to them, I am Joseph. The one who previously asked about their father now asks, is my father still alive? In verse 4, he says, I am your brother, Joseph whom you sold into slavery, not so much with the intention of accusing them or waving their sin in their faces, but to confirm for them his identity. For he's stating the fact, a fact that only 10 of the 11 of them knew. Benjamin did not know the truth of what happened to his brother. So he is hearing for the first time that his brother was not dead as his father had suspected, but had been sold into slavery. And so imagine that you're one of the brothers. You're standing before the Egyptian prime minister who suddenly sends everyone out of the room and then speaks to you in your native language and tells you that he is your brother whom you previously sinned against by plotting to kill him and later selling him into slavery. Here he stands now as the one who has your very lives in his hands. Joseph only needed to say one word and the Egyptians could come in and arrest all of them and execute them if he so desired. And so is there no surprise that the reaction of the brothers was what was indicated in verse 3 where we're told they could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Dismayed is also rendered terrified in the NIV and the NASB. This word is often used of, in other places in the Bible of those who are in dismay when they are in a battle or in warfare. But in this gracious revelation of Joseph, he seemingly senses their fear and says in verse 4, Come near to me, please. Instead of accusing them, instead of pushing them away, Joseph reveals himself and graciously calls them to come near to him. How different from the previous major reconciliation that we saw in Genesis, which occurred when Jacob and Esau reconciled. Yes, they reconciled, but what happened? They went their separate ways. They lived separately. But here, Joseph tells them to come near, and not just them, 
but their families. As we see in verse 10, when he says, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. And then he further extends grace to his brothers and in essence says to them, yes, you sinned against me, but I have forgiven you and you can forgive yourselves. Look at verse 5. Now be not distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Note that Joseph didn't excuse what they did. He didn't absolve them of the responsibility for what they did. But in addition to that, in these statements, Joseph wrested from the brothers any sense that they were ultimately in control and pointed them to the one who was and is and will always be in control, God. Notice also that Joseph points to God as the one who has made him to be a father to Joseph and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. In Joseph's words, we see that God gets all the attention and all the glory. After Joseph indicates to them that they are to go and get their father and their families because there will still be five years of famine, he tells them what they are to say to their father to cause him to believe that they're speaking the truth. And then Joseph greets each one of them, weeping on them. And although briefly referenced but significant, verse 15 says that his brothers talked with him. Why is this significant? Because when their hearts were dominated by jealousy, envy, and hatred, we read in Genesis 37:4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They are accepted by him, they are brought near to him, and they're able to talk to him now. Joseph's gracious revelation brought about reconciliation between these brothers where there was previously hatred and envy. But the scene playing itself out in private could not be contained because verse 16 tells us that Pharaoh learns of the brothers' arrival. Pharaoh speaks to Joseph and commands him concerning his family and in many ways reiterates Joseph's instructions to his brothers. Look at verse 17. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Verse 18, take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. Verse 19, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Verse 20, have no concern for your goods for the best of the land of Egypt is yours. Pharaoh basically reiterates what Joseph has already spoken to them and so we see how in many ways Joseph has indeed become the father Pharaoh. We, start, we read in verse 21, the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. Note that in contrast to the clothes that were stripped from Joseph, Joseph graciously gives them changes of clothes. And not only gives them changes of clothes, but then gives Benjamin five times the others. And note once again, jealousy has been dealt with. Envy has been dealt with. We don't read in scripture of, of any reaction, this favoring of Benjamin by the brothers. In verse 23, he read, to his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the goods of things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on 
the way. Indeed, wise words as these brothers depart, as they are journeying and considering all that has transpired on this second visit to Egypt. And as they consider how they are going to explain to their father that Joseph is indeed alive and is now the ruler of Egypt. So as we think about Joseph's gracious revelation of himself to his brothers, we also see God's gracious revelation of himself through Joseph's words and actions. And so that brings us to our first question. What characteristics of God are shown in Joseph's words and actions in, in Genesis 45? Yes, Andre. Well, it shows a great deal of brotherly love. Mm-hmm. Yes. Liz? Abundant pardon. Abundant pardon. Pardon. Grace, indeed. Debbie. Compassion. Compassion. What other characteristics of God? Yes. Mercy. Mercy. Grace. Grace. What else? Kindness. I'm sorry? Kindness. Kindness. Yes. Yes, Pastor. God's sovereignty. He says in verse 8, so it was not you Mm -hmm. who sent me here, but God. Yes. God's sovereignty. We see God's providence. And we see God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. A remnant. Reminder of the promise that God has given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he sent me before you to keep alive for you many survivors, showing that there was an even greater purpose for this family that God had promised. Verses 25 through 28 detail the brothers' arrival in Canaan. Jacob was told that Joseph is still alive and he's the ruler of Egypt. We're told that Jacob's heart initially went numb. The NIV renders it stunned. You can imagine how stunning it would be be told that someone that you assumed was dead for 22 years is not only alive, but is now the second most powerful person in all the world. I think it would be stunning enough for him to hear that Joseph is alive. But how much more stunning that he is the ruler of Egypt. And after having Joseph's words recounted to him and seeing all that was sent by Joseph, Jacob is then convinced and says in verse 28, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And note that once Jacob was convinced that Joseph was alive, he was not enamored with all that had been sent for him. Think of the old Jacob. One who always was looking to get his and everybody else's too. Is all of these gifts brought to him by his sons from his son Joseph. And yet, his sole concern was reunion with his son. And that was enabled by the blessing of gracious revelation that enabled this family once again to be reunited. And so after Joseph has sent his brothers to get their father and Jacob's heart is now set on seeing his son. The next section of our study shows us another blessing of reconciliation. We see promise-filled relocation. As Israel begins the journey to Egypt in chapter 46, we are told that he comes to Beersheba. Beersheba was a place of worship for the patriarchs. It was in Beersheba that Abraham swore an oath with Abimelech and planted a tamarisk tree in Genesis 21, 32, and 33. In Beersheba, Isaac built an altar after God appeared to him in Genesis 26, 23 through 25. And Jacob was near to Beersheba as he was fleeing for his life and where God appeared to him, showing Jacob the staircase into heaven 
and the angels ascending and descending in Genesis 28, 10 through 15. So Beersheba is a significant place in the history of this family and the history of the patriarchs. And we read in verse 2 of chapter 46, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. As God appears to Jacob at Beersheba, it should be marked that this will be the last instance where God will speak directly to man in Genesis. And the next instance of God speaking to man will be approximately 430 years later when God speaks to Moses at the burning bush. After giving us the words that God spoke to Jacob, the rest of the chapter details the names of Jacob's family members who settled in Egypt. This list of names reminds us that God knows the name of every person. But this list also displayed the foundation of the nation that God promised to establish a foundation that included the children of Canaanites. You see the names of Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, Judah's children with Tamar. We see the names of children born to an Egyptian woman. We see Manasseh and Ephraim, born to Joseph by his Egyptian wife. And the last two verses of the chapter summarize Jacob's family who settled in Egypt. Look at verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So there is some discussion about going from 66 to 70, included the two sons, as well as Joseph and his wife. Um, but here we see that the, the, that the number is 70. And as we look at how God has spoken to uh, Jacob and, and how they have been brought into Egypt, we're brought to our second question. It says, consider the promises that God previously spoke to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What are the similarities and differences between what God previously spoke to them and what he speaks to Jacob in Genesis 46, verses 3 and 4. What are the similarities? What are the differences? Yes, Andre. Make him a great nation. Okay. There's a promise. Make him a great nation. And that is a promise that we have heard, repeated, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. Anything else? Yes. Okay. He, he promises that he will be with him. Promises him a place in the land of Canaan. So we see those similarities as well. The promise of the land. What else? Any similarities or any differences seen? Well, one difference is that Jacob is given the okay to go down to Egypt. Typically, going down to Egypt was not a good thing. Bad things happened to the promised chosen people in Egypt. But yet, here, Jacob is told by God to go. And Jacob is also told of his death. It's told to him that Joseph would close his eyes in Egypt. But there's also one other similarity that should be noted, and that is the context. And the context is that the chosen people of God were few when the promises were granted. Abram and Sarai were two in number. Isaac and Rebekah, few. 
And though now we have 70 people listed here, they're coming into Egypt. They are surrounded by a far greater number of people. Yet, what is God's promise? I will make you a great nation in Egypt. And so in what ways, this brings us to our next question, in what ways are the partial fulfillment of these previously, uh, previous promises seen? And, and we see them in God's blessing upon Jacob and his family. And we also see that this family is actually beginning to grow. Abram and Sarai were two very old people for whom it was an impossibility to have children. And yet, in this generation, their family has grown to 70 people. So as God reiterates his promise to Jacob as he and his family relocate and as the promises to Abraham and Isaac are partially fulfilled, we recognize that this promise-filled relocation was a second blessing of Joseph and his brother's reconciliation. And as Jacob and his family come into the land, the last section of tonight's passage displays one last blessing of reconciliation, sovereign separation. As Jacob and his family arrive in Egypt, Judah is sent ahead of Jacob, further cementing his role as the leader of the family. The family is directed to settle in Goshen. And we read of Jacob and Joseph's reunion in verse 29 of chapter 46. It says, Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and know that you are still alive. Don't let the human drama of this pass you by. This father who thought his son was dead, now reunited with his father. And don't let the fact that if Joseph had decided to go a different direction, that this moment may have never come to pass. But God was working in Joseph's heart. God was working in the brother's heart and brought this reunion to pass. Here we see Jacob the one who previously indicated that he would go down to the grave in grief and sorrow with the loss of Joseph and the potential loss of Benjamin. We see him now at peace, declaring that he can go to the grave since he has seen his son alive. Joseph then gives instructions to his brothers and the rest of the household. He tells them how they are to respond to Pharaoh when they are questioned by Pharaoh. He presents a plan to keep the family separate from the Egyptians by indicating that his family members are shepherds and keepers of livestock. If you remember in Genesis 43, the Egyptians' sense of superiority was seen as they kept separate from these Hebrew uh, the, these Hebrew men that came that Joseph had invited to his house. And so Joseph's plan gives further evidence of their sense of superiority when he states in verse 34 that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And so God used even the prejudice of this nation to bring about his sovereign plan. The beginning of chapter 47 Pharaoh meets the members of the household and they respond as they were instructed by Joseph. Pharaoh tells Joseph both to settle his family in Goshen and to place even his own livestock in the care of his household members. Jacob also meets Pharaoh and Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Then in response to Pharaoh's question as to his age, Jacob responds in 47.9, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few 
and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Now remember, Abraham died when he was 175. And Isaac lived to be 180 years old. And so, yes, Jacob's number of days are, are fewer than theirs. But he also describes his days as evil. And that could mean bad in a natural or moral way, or it could mean that they were full of adversity and affliction. And so Jacob was right in many respects. His days were very full of affliction. They were very full of adversity. Now, mind you, we are reminded that he was responsible for some of that adversity and some of that affliction. But even here, his response isn't entirely right. Because even in the midst of bearing the responsibility for his own sin and seeing the division and disintegration of his family over 20 plus years, God still was with him. He still blessed him. And so, yes, Jacob could describe his years as full of adversity and affliction. And it was only right in part, but it was very wrong because he received from the hand of God far more and far better than he deserved. And after this meeting, verse 11 tells us that Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. So we see a sovereign separation between Jacob's family and the Egyptians. And the nature of this separation is even more pronounced as one contrasts Jacob's family gaining possession of land in Egypt with the approach undertaken between Joseph and the Egyptians as the famine grew more severe. And this approach is shown to us in verses 13 through 26 of chapter 47. Verses 14 and 15, we're told that the people brought all their money to Joseph to supply them with grain. Verses 15 and 17, once all the money of the people is gone, they next bring their livestock to Joseph, to him to supply them with grain. Once all the livestock has been sold, the people come and they offer themselves and their land to be bought in exchange for seed. Verses 20 and 21 say, So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. And if we go to verse 25, and they said, you have saved our lives. And this is speaking to Joseph. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaohs. And so as the Egyptians are giving their money, giving their livestock, and selling their land and even themselves into servitude to Pharaoh in exchange for grain and seed, read this in verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Notice the contrast. As the Egyptians are losing their land, as they are losing their freedom, the people of God who are foreigners in this land, and yet who God is with, are settled in their land, are gaining possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So through Joseph, God is putting into place the means by which Jacob and his family will be kept separate from Egypt. They'll be kept separate from the Canaanites, 
Remember, that was a great threat that they would assimilate with the Canaanites. And so they are kept from mixing with the Canaanites as they're in Egypt. And ultimately, a nation will be established who will be separated unto him. As God does this separation of Jacob and his family, we also see the partial fulfillment of his previous previous promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I won't ask the question, I want us to get to the application, but in chapter 47, we see Jacob blessing Pharaoh. What was one of the promises that God gave to Abraham? That he would be a blessing to the nations. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. We see Jacob's family blessed. We have seen the promise of blessing. And we see Jacob's family multiplying greatly. The promise of being made a great nation. And so as we consider... And I don't have the last two, pa- uh, two pages of my... <laughs> oh, yes, I do. It got mixed in. <laughs> a uh, teacher's worst nightmare. <laughs> so as we see the partial fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the last phrase of the passage points to the language of God, to Adam and Eve, and even to Noah. That they are to be fruitful and multiply. And this last phrase prepares us for the next study, which will bring us to the end of Genesis. And so, our last few minutes, there's the last question for this evening. What are points of application that can be drawn from Genesis 45 through 47-27 by the first hearers of this history, as well as by us? What are points of application that could be drawn from this passage? Yes, Andre. And why would that be important for the first hearers? <laughs> um, the first hearers would have eventually turned into slaves, right? But then, for the first hearers of Genesis? Right. You're talking about people that uh, would be with Moses? Yes. They would have been slaves and brought out, right? Yes. And where would they have been? In the wilderness. Getting ready to do what? Going to the promised land. Yes. God is with them. Therefore, they are not to fear. Would going into the promised land be an easy task? No. They were about to face nations that were greater and mightier and more numerous than they were. And yet here he gives them an example of his ability to keep his people. What else? Points of application. Yes, Robert. I'm just piggybacking, but I, I put down like he preserved the 12 tribes because that was his control. He had the plan of it. Yeah. God's plan has been given, right? Yeah. Yeah. God will be faithful to his people, just as he was faithful to the patriarchs. And that is a point of application for the first hearers and for us. God is the same God. As you also said, Robert, another point is that God can sustain his people even when there is hardship all around them. What will we see in Exodus? We'll see the plagues upon the land of Egypt. We'll see darkness in the land of Egypt. And what will we see in Goshen? We'll see light. God can sustain his people. Anything else? Yes, Esther. I found it really encouraging. There's so much heartache that was in Joseph's life and just a lot of difficulty, yet God was using all of 
Um, we have no idea where God is bringing us. Um, and there can be reconciliation in relationships mm-hmm. that seem like it's impossible. Yeah. Who knows, maybe 22 years down the road mm-hmm. that will happen. And so it just kind of brings hope that our, our suffering is not useless. Amen. Amen. Yes, our suffering is not in vain. And we can rest in that promise that indeed God is going to accomplish his purposes because we have experienced the blessings of reconciliation with God in Christ. Think about it. In Christ, we've experienced gracious revelation. God has graciously revealed to us his holiness, our unholiness, and our need for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. John 6.44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We did not save ourselves. We did not find Jesus. No, he found us. And not only have we experienced gracious revelation, we've also experienced promise-filled relocation and saving us. God transferred us from death in trespasses and sins into life in Christ. We were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we've also experienced sovereign separation. God by his spirit is conforming us to the image of Christ. He is making us and has made us a people for himself. And though we are in the world, we are not of the world. John 17, verses 14 through 19. This is Jesus praying for for us. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for your sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We've experienced a sovereign separation from this world. And because we have experienced the blessings of reconciliation, we should then seek to tell others of the reconciliation with God that he has provided through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We who have been reconciled, we who are experiencing the blessings of reconciliation, are now to become ambassadors and the carriers of this ministry of reconciliation as well. But this also comes to the day today. And as we consider resolving interpersonal conflict, we should be those who are indeed seeking reconciliation because of all that God has done in reconciling us to himself. This is something that we are hearing a lot of lately as we go through our Resolving Everyday Conflict series. May we have these blessings in mind as we consider how we might go about reconciling with our brother or our sister. We go about reconciling with our husband or wife, our brother or sister. 
may we have in mind all that God has done for us in reconciling us to himself. And may we show that same grace to others that we may be in conflict with as well. We see a clear demonstration of the blessings of reconciliation here in the life of Joseph and Jacob and their family. And may we ask God to help us to not simply just seek these blessings, but to seek him and ask him to be his people, to be marked as the sons of God, for that's who peacemakers in Christ truly are. Well, we have time for maybe one question or comment before we close. All right, well, let us pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that your word records for us your perfection, your holiness, your faithfulness. And it does not shy away from displaying man's sin. And as we see here, despite man's sin, you are able to work in hearts to bring about reconciliation. And so, Lord, we thank you first and foremost for the reconciliation that we have been granted with you in Christ. Thank you that in Christ we have been forgiven of our sins and we have been given a perfect righteousness that cannot be taken away. And Lord, as we consider the application of all that you have shown us in this passage, your faithfulness, your sustaining power, your being with us, Lord, help us to be found seeking reconciliation when we find ourselves in conflict, we find ourselves fearing, help us to be seeking you and not to figure out things on our own. Lord, we pray that as we have studied this passage, that it would bear fruit in our lives, fruit that would remain and fruit that would bring glory to your name. We do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.